Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the program is available for free whenever you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. This show has a mailing list and a Facebook group, and I use them both for the exact same purpose, so I wouldn't join both, but I'd join one or the other if I were you. You'll find the mailing list at thejazzsession.com, and if you go on Facebook and just type The Jazz Session into the search box, you'll find the group there. In either case, I send out one email each Monday morning, which tells you what's coming up on uh, the week ahead and the following week, and also usually gives you some interesting links to things you might find enjoyable if you have a similar interest to me, <laughs> which is probably unlikely, but you never know. A couple of months back, uh, Mark Myers from Jazzwax was, jazzwax.com, I should say, was on this program talking about the early days of, of Bossa Nova, kind of the, the proto-Bossa era uh, when folks like Bud Shank uh, were involved in the mix and Lorindo Almeida and a bassist named Harry Babison. Well, while I was preparing that show, uh, a few people said to me, you know who you ought to contact is Von Babison, who is Harry's son, and who could tell you a lot about his dad, one of the, the neglected figures in jazz history. Well, that seemed like a pretty good idea to me, so I contacted Von, and he's on the show this week. Here's some music featuring his father. My guest is Von Babison. Uh, his father was Harry Babison, who uh, was a bass player who de certainly deserves a much larger place in uh, the jazz history books than he so far received. And we're going to explore uh, some of the reasons why uh, on this program today. Von, so thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Jason. Now, I had uh, I had actually heard of your dad, which 
places me sadly in a, a fairly small <laughs> camp these days. It seems like, uh, but your dad was brought to my attention uh, again and and uh, kind of to a greater height when I spoke first read uh, Mark Myers' uh, pieces in Jazz Wax about Bud Shank's early uh, Bossa years, and then when I spoke with Mark uh, on the jazz session about that and. What was really incredible to me is that it's not too often that someone gets to take part in the creation of an entirely new you know, genre of music, particularly one that then became an international sensation, and yet no one uh, can identify him. And so I wanted to start just talking about uh, your father's contribution to the early days of Bossa, so early that Bossa Nova wasn't even the word they used for it. Can we start there and talk about your dad and Lorindo Almeida uh, and their early partnership? Yeah, sure. That would be great. Harry and Lorendo actually met, of all places, on the set of a movie in 1947 called A Song is Born, starring Danny Kaye and Virginia Mayo. Um, my dad was Benny Goodman's bass player at the time, and uh, that seemed to really be a pivotal time in his career. Uh, he had just relocated out to Los Angeles from all around the country, um, grew up in Texas and schooled at North Texas State. But... Uh, Anyway, on the set of this movie, uh, Lorendo wasn't even credited in the in the credits of the movie. He was uh, an extra, and Harry and he hit it off immediately. Um, they would play duets all the time and in downtime in between shots. And Dad, of course, was fascinated by the rhythms of the traditional Brazilian folk songs that Lorendo brought with him. So uh, they maintained a relationship for a number of years. Uh, they would be playing at, at different nightclubs at one night, and, and whoever would get off first would go over to the other's gig and, and kind of jam in between sets, and, <laughs> and they kind of experimented with these rhythms for a number of years. And then in the 50s, uh, they came back together and they were experimenting with these rhythms again and um, decided that maybe what they needed to do was to round out uh, a full group, at least a quartet. And they were rehearsing in a back room at Drum City, which was uh, his drummer business partner Roy Hart's establishment. It was one of the hippest drum shops in Hollywood for couple of decades at least, and uh, Bud Shank came wandering in, and they said, you know what, you would really be a wonderful addition to this sound, so they started the experimentation at that point. Um, you know, it was interesting, I, I listening to the interview with Mark, um, he had mentioned uh, the conga as not really being a traditional Brazilian instrument, you know those guys they weren't <laughs> they weren't thinking in terms of that at all you know they they were just thinking in terms of uh whether Lorendo could swing <laughs> if uh if given the, the proper provocation shall we say and uh and what how they could lay bud sacks over the top of what they were doing that's pretty much how the how the quartet was born and I definitely encourage people. I, I don't want to um, 
I don't want the the bossa thing to kind of suck up all the air of this conversation. So <laughs> I would encourage people to both uh, listen to that show and to read Mark's pieces, and uh, and I also encourage everybody to seek out Harry's name online because you'll find there's there is actually now becoming uh, some amount of information out there about him. But one one thing I did want to uh, to kind of come back to was the fact that. After the Bossa thing took off, and then even actually, you know, I mean, Bud Shank really didn't uh, get any credit. I mean, there was the kind of Getz Gilberto thing and Charlie Bird, and uh, I mean, those people were certainly important figures in the early days of the music. But what was interesting to me, and what seems to be the case throughout your dad's life in particular, is that it's almost like, you know, tracing your family tree and you get back as far as one particular ancestor and beyond that person, it's, you know, it's there be dragons. No one, no one has any idea what came right before then. Is there anything to which you can ascribe the fact that in all of the writing that's been done about Bassa over the years, for example, your father's name rarely, if ever, appeared? Well, you know, I, I hate to say this, but I really think there's a perception in the public's consciousness that Bass players are supported, supportive players. They, you know, they're, if you look back in the annals of great bass players, there are very few names mentioned. Uh, Charlie Mingus is probably the most prominent. Uh, you mentioned Oscar Pettiford, and, and you'll just get the rare aficionado that really is aware of Oscar's work. Um, you know, and then you get more contemporary with Ray Brown and Ron Carter and Stanley Clark and you know the the new guys that that have Jocko that have brought it much more prominence, but especially in those early days, you know Harry was such a rare breed. He was obviously, like I said, schooled. He he played a number of instruments in school: bassoon, bass, cello, clarinet. Uh, he was a well-rounded musician, and he could read fluently. And and he actually went to the bass just because it seemed to be the easiest instrument he could earn a living at. <laughs> it seemed like they always needed a bass player, so he just threw in with the bass and, and gravitated toward it and stuck with it.
somebody once said to me, I think a bass player once said to me, uh, you know, a bass player who can read music will never be unemployed. And I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, certainly it seems like in your dad's case, uh, he spent very little time not working for for all of the years that he was a bass player. Oh, you know, it, it really took until the, the 70s. Uh, you know, the, the advent of rock and roll, of course, kind of submarined the, the whole jazz movement. So you had to switch over to, to what was in those early days called Fender Bass, <laughs> which, of course, was the electric bass guitar. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of bastardize yourself and, and, and uh, take yourself away from your, your roots, more, more or less, do the commercial work. Now the uh, I, I, before we uh, kind of come that far in your dad's life, I want to go back to the film that you mentioned. And if I'm not mistaken, that was also the place where your dad kind of first got the idea about playing the cello in a jazz setting. And then he would go on to be the first person, if I'm not mistaken, to ever record the cello and play uh, cello solos in a jazz yeah. setting. Is that right? Yeah, in a, in a pizzicato setting. Uh, I think cellos had been used in the background in an arco, you know, kind of the orchestration type cello. But, uh, yeah, my dad was kind of, again, spending time in between shots on the set and picked up a prop cello and started plucking around on it. And his good friend and later-to-be manager, uh, Charlie Barnett, came over and said, Hey, Harry, that's really cool <laughs> you know if you develop that that could really turn into something and so later on that year and then in fact uh, december of 47 uh he recorded the first ever pizzicato jazz cello tracks with the dodo mamarosa trio on uh, dial records i think it was and then uh, uh, right after that in january 48 i have an old uh issue of a little periodical that was produced by Capitol Records called The Capitol News from Hollywood. And it has a wonderful picture of my dad on cello in front of a small orchestra that was called the Harry Babison Orchestra. And he's fronting this group on cello. So I think that's the first time ever a cello was used as by the leader of a, of a small combo. And uh, as a matter of fact, he brought his uh, his colleague from North Texas State, Jimmy Jufrey, out to Hollywood to be a part of that group as they went to school together at that time. Now, playing the jazz uh, cello, or the cello in jazz in, in the pizzicato style, in other words, the plucked style, not bowed, is is right. a first generally attributed to Oscar Pettiford. Um, Indeed. And your dad preceded him doing that, but even more interestingly, I, I read that uh, your dad and he recorded cello duets together, right? That's right. Um, amazingly, reading through some of my dad's old memoirs, uh, he mentions being on tour with Woody Herman's Second Herd back in '48, and uh, he actually met with Pettiford back east and shared his thoughts on cello with him at the time, which really blew me away because Oscar was, Dad always told me he was an idol of his. So um, Oscar came out to the West Coast in the early 50s, I think it was 52, and they recorded a duet cello session with Joe Comfort backing them on bass. So by adding a bass, it freed the cello up to be a full-time melodic instrument. And in this case, two playing harmony melodies to one another and then switching off the solos. Uh, I think it was released on Imperial Records. 
and and under the name of the Oscar Pettiford All Stars, and and uh, ironically, the liner notes of the album itself say that Oscar was the first recorded <laughs> pizzicato <laughs> jazz cellist. Well, there there you have that. I guess. <laughs> I do want to now uh, go back and fill in some of the, the gaps in your dad's history. You mentioned uh, he was from Texas, and uh, I particularly love the story. Uh, a lot of great people came out of the, the school that he went to. Uh, you, you already mentioned Jimmy Jufri, and another was Herb Ellis, right. uh, a great guitar player. Many people know from his years with Oscar uh, Peterson. And I particularly love the story of your dad and Herb uh Going to see the Charlie Fisk Orchestra <clears throat> and having a an unusual pitch uh, to Mr. Fisk to try and uh, secure an audition. Will you tell us that story? Yes, he, they were rather audacious back in their early years, and uh, they promptly went up to Mr. Fisk and said that we could outplay your current rhythm section, and this really surprised <laughs> Mr. Fisk because no one ever had the. Uh, gumption to do that kind of thing so he gave them a shot at it and they promptly backed up their words <laughs> they were given a job on the spot <laughs> which i mean you have which is a story you know in the retelling it's funny but when you think about it, the fact that there were actually other guys who had those jobs who suddenly didn't have those jobs anymore it's uh it's got to be uh the most interesting way anyone's ever lost a gig on the bandstand <laughs> now how how old was your dad around that time oh my gosh he was 20, 21, 22 years old. And so was that gig uh, when, in Charlie Fisk's band, which I know didn't actually uh, last very long, and he went on to, right. to bigger and better things, but sure. was that uh, his entree into the professional music world? Well, he had been with a, a couple of other small orchestras that played regularly around the Texas scene. I think one was called Bill Ware Orchestra. In fact, there's a picture on my Jazz and Hollywood site uh, the Harry the Bear HTML um, that has a very young Jimmy Jufri at the microphone with <laughs> Dad looking so wet behind the ears playing his bass up on the bandstand. Uh, that was the Bill Ware Orchestra, and, and I, I, some of the other names slip 
because they were just so obscure. And these are kind so, of territory bands, right? I mean, bands that just, yeah, exactly. people in that local area would have known, but outside that, no one would have ever correct. Yeah, would have ever heard of them. Yeah, Fisk was his his vehicle out of Texas, which he was very happy to to do. <laughs> so, what was the next? What was the next jump uh, after Charlie Fisk's band? Uh, there was a a group called the Jimmy Joy Orchestra. Uh, he was another kind of obscure band leader, but that was his uh, his move to Kansas City where he first met Charlie Parker. Uh, and and plus, uh, he said in his memoirs, too, that uh, Kansas City was doing the kind of jazz he really liked. So he was very excited to be able to go up there. What do you think he meant by that, Vaughn? What, what particularly attracted him about the Kansas City style at that time? Well, I'm not really certain. I think he was playing, you know, cornier styles back in Texas, the the big band stuff. Uh, he, you know, of course, that whole era right then was was big band. But um, I think he just felt that the scene in Kansas City was, you know, the grass is always greener. I, ironically, from Kansas City, he immediately wanted to get out of there and go to New York, you know, so again, hooked up with another uh, orchestra called Bob Strong Orchestra, and uh, that took him to New York. So he was just as excited to get out of Kansas City then as he was (laughs) to get out of Texas originally. (laughs) And when he got to New York, uh, was it easy for him to to kind of quickly find work at a a higher level than he'd been working up to that point? Oh, yeah. He, He was heard by all the right people instantly. And before before you knew it, he was playing with Barnett's band. He was playing with uh, Gene Krupa, uh, Benny Goodman. Um, he was really doing the rounds, and and all the people were hearing him. All the players were hearing him. Uh, apparently, he'd hooked up again with Charlie Parker. So he he had a little history with Bird before Bird came out to the West Coast, and they had their jam session later in his career at the Trade Winds. In the New York scene, uh, I mean, things were moving very quickly. I mean, there, although there were still, obviously, it was still very possible to make a living, kind of in the big band style or the the orchestral jazz style. But there was also uh, this movement that Charlie Parker was, you know, one of the people at the forefront of. Uh, how did where did your dad kind of fall on the you know the new sound, the bebop thing? Was he uh, was he eager to to kind of forge ahead with all these young guys, or was he uh, kind of a fan of the more traditional? What, what at that point was more traditional? Well. You know, obviously he liked getting paid. You know, he he wanted to <laughs> Fair work. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to work and make a professional living. But yeah, this this was a time when all the guys that were putting over the big names were wanting to stretch. They wanted to create their own musical identity. Um, you know that the record labels were still just paying attention to the name draws, and uh, and so. You know the the whole trying to put together a Harry Babison orchestra. You know he he wanted to become a leader in his own right and be recognized for for what he could do. And uh, I think that's what happened with a lot of guys. You know that were breaking out small combos and and trying to to do something that would catch on. You know always always experimenting. I I know Dad was really on the cutting edge. Uh, in fact, he was almost always ahead of his time um, in in whatever he did. So, um, you know, when when I know he he loved the 
York scene, but he hated the weather, <laughs> obviously. And when the the chance to go to Los Angeles and uh, be a part of the film and recording industry out here opened for him, he jumped on it. And how did he get that chance? Uh, Charlie Barnett. He, he came out with the Barnett band, but then also uh, Benny Goodman was out there. Benny was all over the place, and, and so he had a history with Benny and hooked up with him here as well and did a lot of recording. And, and then he was pretty much one of the main go-to guys. He was a, a first-call session player. Your dad had met Roy Hart, who you mentioned earlier, uh, who owned the drum shop and was himself a drummer and played on the, the early uh, Almeida band uh, recordings also. Had you, your dad had already known Roy Hart before going to the West, right? Is that correct? Yeah. One of those little obscure bands that I kind of split over back in New York, uh, one was called the Billy Rogers Orchestra, and she was a female trumpeter band leader. And uh, dad and Roy uh, met for the first time playing with her. Uh, I think this was 44. And uh, I have some an old picture, old promotional picture, and, and believe it or not, a recording from the Pelham Health Club in <laughs> the Bronx, New York. <laughs> oh, yes, that record. I think I have a copy of that. <laughs> it's really amazing what you find on eBay, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> And, and your dad and Roy seem to be, uh, at least uh, certainly to hear Roy tell it after the fact, seem to be a, a perfect match of personalities, and not because their personalities were similar necessarily, but they just seem to, to really mesh very well musically and as, as human beings. Yes, indeed. Yeah, Roy was great. They, they used to say that they called the, each other twins before the Schwarzenegger-DeVito movie ever came out. And, of course, Dad's 6'1", and Roy's 5'2". Three or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. Roy was a very short man, so the two of them were were real mutton Jeff. But but yeah, musically they they just got on so famously, and you know, Roy was instrumental in the creation of the Pacific Jazz label, which recorded the Lorando Almeida Quartet, uh, 
But then right almost immediately after they did that, um, Harry and Roy birthed their own record label called Nocturne Records. Definitely, let's talk about Nocturne, because um, I know you've released uh, a compilation uh, on CD of the things that Nocturne itself released, and Roy has suggested that there are probably hundreds of hours uh, of recorded music that never got released as well. We we talk about the Nocturne label, which uh, one other thing I just wanted to mention about it was that it allowed artists to retain control of their masters, if I've got my history right, which was very so far ahead of its time that it hasn't happened yet <laughs> in, in most cases uh, unless artists start their own labels so yeah tell us about nocturne definitely oh okay yeah um it it was it was created because like i had mentioned before the big labels didn't want to give any recognition to the small guys to the little players out there and you know nocturne there were a bunch of them bethlehem contemporary uh you know a handful of labels that were all coming out like that but uh, Harry's was very unique in that it was kind of a co-op record label. He allowed you to retain your master if you felt that what they were doing wasn't getting your your release enough attention or you weren't happy with it, then you could walk with your master. And uh, proof of that is two of the original Nocturne releases are no longer in any compilation that you'll ever find because the number four album, the Conley Graves Trio, and there was uh, the number five album, which was uh, Earl Father Hines. Both uh, requested to be released, and they were, and they walked with their masters. So the the Fresh Sound Box set, which uh, is really the premier uh, re-release of the Nocturne label, that one does not have either one of those releases. Uh, neither does the fantasy. There is a fan- fantasy release of the same series of albums, kind of a miscommunication type of thing, but uh, they apparently had remastered from vintage albums, uh, and and uh, Fresh Sound had remastered from tapes. I think the uh, Fresh Sound sound quality is better, and they also have a 84-page booklet of wonderful photos and reviews and and good stuff that all jazz aficionados love to piece through and look through. And stuff. <laughs> now, at the time that your dad um, was involved with Nocturne, and in fact, in a, during all this time in California when he was playing, was he uh, making his primary living uh, kind of in the studios and the Hollywood studios and so on? Oh, yes. Yeah, he was playing with everybody. Um, he was a regular with Frank Duvall, uh, Jerry Gray Orchestra, um, played with uh, Pete Rugolo, and then this was all coexisting with all these other incarnations. You know, he's a record producer, he's a bassist, he's a cellist, he's, what is he today? Um, you know, he, I, I mentioned the trade winds. He was uh, kind of like the Howard Rumsey of a little pseudo-Polynesian motif club in Inglewood called the Trade Winds. And there was a comedian satirist by the name of Herm Hines who hosted... A series of, of jam sessions, which was called Ta-da, Sessions in Jazz. How about that? Hey, I like it. <laughs> that would almost be a good name for a show. <laughs> Maybe transpose of words. <laughs> That's right. But uh, anyway, so this series of jam sessions were, was led by Harry, and uh, there are a few, a handful of them that got recorded. A drummer by the name of Bob Andrews used to lug this huge recording device around to a lot of the clubs in the Southland. 
And um, there's this quirky little... God, I get off on these tangents. There's this quirky little Israeli film called The Band's Visit that was made in 2007. And in the dialogue of the film, the band leader says, I like Chet Baker. I have all his recordings from the beginning with the Harry Babison octet until the final concert in 1988. Well, this... Harry Babison octet that was referred to was one of the jam session nights at the Trade Winds that happened to have eight guys on stage. <laughs> Harry Babison and the seven other guys who showed up, right? <laughs> and there's actually, and it, I mean, there's a famous picture um, of Chet Baker. You know, he's about four years old, and Charlie <laughs> Parker is there, and some guy in the middle. You know, the guy in the middle is Harry Babison, and. Uh, and in fact, what I found was even more interesting about that story uh, was that th- those two guys were there in that club because it was Harry's club, and they knew Harry, and they were looking for a place to play, right? And they, yes. God, thank you so much for saying that instead of having me say it. God bless you. Yes, Charlie came to town, and he looked up Dad because they had a history together, and he loved Dad. You know, and, and Chet... Chet was a kid from Inglewood that used to hang out at the club in hopes that Harry would let him jam. <laughs> you know, it's funny how these stories, you'll read biographies of this guy and this guy, and, and, and Harry played with all of them. And, and for some reason, that little connection gets obscured. I, I n- have never really understood that. In the same way that, and I don't mean this in any other way except the way I'm about to say, people always say, you know, history is written by the winners. Well, it's the same way that, you know, Charlie Parker went on to become incredibly famous and Chet Baker is incredibly famous. So when you see a picture of Charlie Parker and Chet Baker and some guy you can't identify, you just, you almost edit, the, it's like your mental Photoshop. You just edit that guy right out of the picture because you see the guys that you actually know. But, I mean, there's so, there's so much more that's so much more interesting, you know, behind these behind these stories uh, I'm also I'm interested in your dad's uh, your dad's nickname he was called the bear is the bear. that purely a reference to the fact that he was 6'1 and a big guy well yeah pretty much and and the way he attacked the base he, he really huddled around it 
pawing at it. You know, he had a claw. The 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 way he just just the tenacity that he attacked the string just brought about this nickname, the bear. <laughs> oh boy, Vaughn, you're uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're in about your mid forties or so, right? Uh, no, no, I'm my mid fifties. Oh, mid fifties, okay. Four now, yeah. Oh, okay, all right. So I was what I was about to ask then wouldn't have made any sense. So now I'll ask a, a question that actually deals with reality, which is: so if you're in your mid fifties, that means uh, so when you were born, your did you did you know? I mean, you thought of your dad as a, a bass player and a musician, and you just thought it was normal that he knew all these guys and was working in the Hollywood studios and was in movies. Was that was that kind of what your household was like? Sure. Yeah, it was, I mean, that was just normal. I remember one of my earliest memories, I was four years old, and we went to see my dad off at the airport. Um, He was going on a USO tour with Bob Hope and uh, the Skinny Innes Orchestra, and Zoot Sims was a part of that. (laughs) It was very nice. Um, But I remember we got to meet Steve McQueen, and Steve was... Uh, the star of Wanted Dead or Alive at the time, playing a, a part called uh, by the name of Josh Randall <laughs> with a sawed-off shotgun. <laughs> and my brother and I were there on the tarmac <laughs> meeting Josh. <laughs> we couldn't understand that his name was actually Steve <laughs> <laughs> with our sawed-off shotguns <laughs> on the tarmac of an airport. I don't think you can do that anymore. <laughs> no, prob- prob- probably not. If you can't bring shaving cream, you probably can't bring a sawed-off shotgun anymore. <laughs> no onto the, the well, they were toys. But. Yeah, oh, fair enough. Yeah, I, I kind of hoped. I know jazz musicians are free thinkers and all, but uh, well, it, well, that's interesting to me. And then, when was it in your life that you began to realize that that people didn't remember who your dad was, and and how did you how did you react? Well, you know, we always, growing up, we always knew, you know, there was there was this wonderful story that uh, was printed in a 1962 downbeat, written by a journalist by the name of John Tynan, who's still alive, living in Palm Desert, that I hope to interview for the documentary, <laughs> which we'll mention maybe later. Absolutely. Um, uh, it's called The Real Story of the Bossa Nova, and, and it, it really detailed at length uh, the basic the story that we've been talking about at the beginning of this interview, uh, it, as far as actually notating the baseline, which and the, 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 just the story is wonderful. Oh, another addition to what Mark had mentioned, how this these albums got introduced to Brazil. Uh, Lorendo in this article, Lorendo is quoted as saying he took. 25 copies of the, of their albums back to Brazil with him and passed them out to all his friends huh. and said they were given close attention <laughs> <laughs> close attention indeed yes that's that's a euphemism for that's what we're going to play now <laughs> So, uh, but going back to the idea of, uh, I mean, you said you kind of always, you knew very early on that uh, that your father wasn't getting recognized, but it, at, at some point that must have become more than a than just a piece of knowledge. I mean, it seems like it's become in many ways kind of a mission. Was there, a, was there something that caused that transition in you? Was it just growing up? And well, having... it was, yeah, just becoming more aware of it. Um, you know, I, I almost felt there was, there was almost a conspiracy. Um, the 
original 1955 Encyclopedia of Jazz by Leonard Feather has a wonderful write-up of Dad, crediting the, the not the bossa nova, of course, but not in 55, but, but this wonderful recording with the Lorendo Almeida Quartet, um, the original cello, uh, all the Nocturne records. Um, he mentions a lot of history of Harry. And then, in subsequent editions, uh, the the entry for Harry gets smaller and smaller. Finally, I think I have a 1969 issue that mentions nothing of that. All it mentions is that he completed his master's degree at San Fernando Valley State College and that he recorded with Phil Moody, <laughs> who, who was this obscure pianist that... He, <laughs> that Dad played with as a, just a regular weekly gig out at a place called the Ram's Horn in the Valley here in San Fernando Valley. Now, now, not necessarily in Leonard Feather's uh, defense, but uh, but per- perhaps in uh, in explanation, uh, is there reason to believe that uh, Leonard had a, a an emotional reason to want to reduce your dad's entry in the? Uh... Well, I you know I can't really say per se. You know I. I know in, in Leonard's defense, uh, there became more and more and more personalities to add to his encyclopedia. So, so entries had to be edited down where it, it made feasible sense to. But to take away the introduction of jazz cello, you know, I mean, those are far more significant. The, the Lorendo Almeida Quartet, those were far more significant than whether he earned a master's degree at San Fernando Valley State College. <laughs> and went on to play with Phil Moody, right? And yeah. went on yeah. to play with <laughs> Phil Moody. I mean, good grief. Oh, yeah. Forget Boyd Rayburn, Woody Herman, Benny Goodman. Uh, you know, oh, my gosh. The list goes on and on and on. I've got footage of his playing. Uh, there, there was a series in the late 50s called Stars of Jazz on ABC television. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Absolutely. It was hosted by Bobby Troop. And Dad was in three different episodes of that. One of them, he's playing with Charlie Barnett and uh, the guest singers Mel Torme, and they do they do a little song. Mel's on piano and and Jack Sperling's on drums and Dad's on bass. A beautiful little trio montage there. But uh, then the third one in '58 is actually features the Jazz Pickers, which was my dad's signature group. He did three different albums with the Jazz Pickers. The third was probably the most prominent. The All Music Guide still claims that it's the best of Harry Babison. Um, but it features Terry Gibbs on Vibes. It's a, just a sweet album. Um, and, and he plays four of the songs that are recorded on that album on this episode of Stars of Jazz. And, uh, and and he's on cello, of course. I think uh, he's got Red Mitchell on bass behind him. But it's just, boy, to see him tearing up that cello is just exquisite. It's just wonderful footage. Finally, Vaughn, I want to talk about the fact that in addition to doing things like trying to get your dad's name out there in the media and, and correct the record where possible, you're trying to take matters a little more into your own hands and actually produce a record, uh, a definitive kind of statement about your father's uh, history in the form of a documentary, right? So will you, will you talk about that? Sure, yeah. Um, well, first of all, I do, believe it or not, I have an extensive history in film as well as music. <laughs> my grandfather on my mom's side 
was uh, an ACE film editor for Universal for 40 years with uh, over 130 films to his credit. So along with kicking back with Dad and all his stories about music, I got to hang out with my grandfather who would tell me all his stories about film. And so I've always kind of been, I worked as a special effects man for a number of years, and I've produced and directed music video and, and done soundtrack work as well musically. So um, I have a pretty wide-versed background. And in my travels, you know, we had, you had mentioned uh, hundreds of hours of jazz masters. Well, we obviously still own those tapes, uh, Rex Hart, Roy's son and I have have been trying to put together uh, a business plan to build a West Coast Jazz Museum um, centered around this archive as a nucleus. And uh, it was in the, the my journey to try to fund the museum when uh, an article was written about me in our local paper that was also online. And a person saw the picture that you mentioned, the Charlie Parker, Chet Baker, Harry Babson picture, and said, oh, my God, Vaughn, this is absolutely incredible. Uh, I happen to be a financial officer here at the New York Foundation for the Arts. Is there some way we could help you? And I said, well, I've always dreamt of doing a documentary about my dad's life. Um, You know, not only highlighting my father, but giving credit to these amazing musicians that settled out here on the West Coast and kind of help give a definition to the entire West Coast jazz movement. So they love the idea. They, uh, I sent them a 20-page proposal, and within a week and a half, I had a signed contract for fiscal sponsorship. But sadly, fiscal sponsorship doesn't mean that they fund me. <laughs> it means that I can raise money under the umbrella of their nonprofit status. So I've still got the arduous task of raising the budget. I've been writing, I've written literally over 500 foundations on behalf of this film and contacted over 1,000 individuals. I have amazing support from, you, you would just be blown away to hear some of the names of the people who uh, who have written to me on behalf of the film, but I'm still far short of my projected budget, and I'm just working arduously to make that happen. Yeah, I was just reading. Um, I was reading a post today on a, one of the the various jazz blogs I read, and there's a um, a guy who is he just released a record, and one of the things that he decided to do was take a hundred copies of it and just leave them in random places with a note that says, here's a free jazz CD for you. And um, in the course of doing this, other people have commented on his idea. And one person said, you know, look at where we've come to, where, you know, this, however cool this idea is, this person feels compelled to actually give away copies of his music. And I think of the same thing about, you know, your project with your father. I mean, this seems like the, the natural kind of thing that 
our our country ought to be doing. Like our government ought to be like finding out about the cultural history of our country, making sure it gets preserved and doesn't disappear, so that you know, fifty years from now, uh, when unless you know your genes are stronger than most people's, you're probably not going to be around. That people are are going to be able to look at that photo and know who the guy in the middle is, and there'll be some documentary evidence of who he was. That just seems so important. Uh, it's such a shame that that the way we have to do it is individuals have to stump up the money and, you know, try and make it happen. Yeah, I know. I've had quite a few people just say, well, why don't you just make it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't cost anything to make a movie, right? No, 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 no. You don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my, my total budget, which is really ridiculous, is, is about $600,000. And traditional film investors laugh at me because they don't want to be involved in anything less than three to five million. And I don't just arbitrarily goose my budget up because that's unethical as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) What is that, like four frames of the Transformers movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, I've always said my, my jazz museum came in around two and a half to three million dollars. And my hook line at the end of my business plan was, for less than it costs to air, not to shoot, to air a 30-second commercial during the Super Bowl, I could build a state-of-the-art jazz museum dedicated to West Coast jazz. <laughs> yeah, you know? it, is, it is pretty incredible. But we do need more ads from Monster.com and all those places. So that's, <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> that's a good use of the money. Well, listen, you're, uh, I mean, your father's an important person in the history of this music. Uh, there at the, at the birth of what would become Bossa Nova, uh, the first person to play uh, pizzicato solos on the cello and really introduce that, that instrument as a lead instrument into the world of jazz. And he played on tons of sessions by all kinds of incredible musicians and played with many of the great names in the, in the era. And he deserves to be recognized as one of those great names. Uh, we're talking about Harry Babison, and my guest has been Von Babison. You know, if I had the 600 grand, I'd give it to you, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I wish you all the best, and I thank you for coming to take the time. And even more than that, I, I you know just thank you for being the kind of cool son who's doing the right thing by his dad. It seems like you're uh, you know you're on you're on the right mission, and uh, I really you, hope Jerry. that you you get to the destination. I really appreciate that, Jason. Thanks very much, Vaughn, and uh, I look forward to talking to you in the future. Yeah, I'll see you on Facebook. All right, brother. Take care.
music featuring Harry Babison. Special thanks to Von Babison, Harry's son, for being on the show this week. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free whenever you want it at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. Big thanks to my good friends in the Respect Sextet. They are performing at Le Poisson Rouge on January 12th uh, in a bill with Ethan Iverson, who will be opening for them on the solo piano. You may know Ethan Iverson from the band The Bad Plus. Uh, It's going to be a fantastic show. Uh, The Respect Sextet always puts on a great program of music. So make sure you're there on January 12th at LPR in New York City, and you can find out details about the show at respectsextet.com. Dave Rabel designed the Jazz Sessions logo. Thanks to him very much. And thanks to you for being here to listen to the show. It would be a lot less exciting if there were no listeners. And as it turns out, there's quite a few. Please do tell a friend about the show if you would. Thank you very much. You can follow me on Twitter, by the way, at Jason D. Crane. Don't forget the Jazz Sessions Facebook group and also the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. Be sure to go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.